Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Okay, my name is uh, John. I'm an alcoholic. It's great to be here and uh, see some of my uh, old and young friends and new friends and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking me. Uh, my name's John. I'm an alcoholic. I love AA. I've loved it from the day and hour I came in for some reason. Um, uh, my sobriety date is the 25th of March, 1977. I, I, was, 20, I was 29 years of age. Uh, I was very good looking, you know. I didn't think so at the time. I must tell you that is because I said that today for the first time in all 40 years. And I just remembered a story I used to tell of walking down Dublin, uh, Dublin Street in the uh, about 1962. And uh, I saw a reflection in, in, a, in a glass mirror. Brown Thomas, it was called, a very posh shop. We were too poor to go into it. But anyway, and I saw this reflection of, of an incredibly good looking young man with long hair. And an, a duffel coat, you know, the, the, the duffel coat. And uh, I turned around to see who it was. And it was me. It was me. You see, I saw myself as a poisoned dwarf shuffling down that street. I was actually shocked when I saw my, but that instant saw myself as is because, you know, that thing a lot of alcoholics, most alcoholics of my type talk about, about that sense of never fitting in, never being good enough, never being always feeling ashamed. Yeah, that was a, a a big portion of my life, which I'll explain. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, yeah, my, at my first meeting, a policeman brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous fo- following a fight in a bar. Uh, I'd say he was a good Samaritan. But um, uh, the fight in the bar, by the way, I lost. But uh, uh, I was telling, I often told that story about the good Samaritan policeman who brought me to AA. And uh, then a policeman in AA said, you know, his shift was probably ending and he just wanted to get rid of you. He didn't want to bring you down to Musgrave Park Police Station. So he just dumped you off at AA. But I, I prefer to think of him as a good Samaritan because I have to whisper this in case my wife hears. It's the greatest night of my life. I tell her it's the second greatest night of my life, my wife. But it's the greatest night of my life. It's the night I found out what was wrong with me. Now, that wasn't my thought when I first went into AA, into the rooms. You know, I was 29, and there were all these old men and women in their 40s and 50s just about to die, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing here? And in hindsight, and everything I tell you is in hindsight, it's the greatest night of my life because it's the night I found out what was wrong with me. I thought my problem was I drank too much. I never, I never denied that. People used to say to me, you drink too much. And I always agreed. Uh, yeah, I do. I drink too much. And that's my problem. That was the error I was drinking in it. My problem is I drink too much. And uh, people used to say to me, you drink too much. You've got like a wooden leg. How do you drink so much? And this bullshit stuff. You know, in bars, I don't know if you're a bar drinker, but the culture in the bars, how much pints could you drink, you know, and all this stuff, all this. Uh, went to a doctor once and she said, well, Mr. Coppin, how much would you drink? Well, I said, it depends, doctor. Now, if I, was, if I was hungover and I went to an early house and I stayed there all day until the middle of the night, I might drink, well, I might drink 40 pints and half a bottle of whiskey. She said, Jesus Christ, Mr. Coppin, that's, that's five gallons. She said, I couldn't drink five gallons of water. 
I said, neither could I, doctor. In fact, I don't know anyone who could drink 40 pints of water. I said that at a meeting in America, and a guy came up to me, he said he was a doctor, he was alcoholic, he was probably a medical orderly or something. But he said, you know, if you drank 40 pints of water in one go, uh, your liver or kidneys couldn't, and you'll die. So you've heard at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, if you're just new around, uh, water can be dangerous. Be very, very careful about the water you drink. It could kill you, you know, so be careful. But that whole milieu that I drank in, you know, the bar culture is, I just loved it. I love the noise of it. I love the bullshit. I love the camaraderie. It's where I got my fellowship. I only found this out. You want to come into AA? I got my fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, bars. I got uh, career guidance in bars. You know, you go to a bar after work and you tell the guys they never disagree with you by the way in a bar what a boss of a boss you know what he did today and oh they'd say you know what i'd do if i was you i don't know you stick it i don't know you stick it i'd go in tomorrow and tell them stick your job up your arse would you absolutely you deserve thousands of jobs out there you know i'm a documentary filmmaker by the way just a matter of interest not many jobs out there but anyway yeah go and then you'd ask them well do you work no, I don't, I don't, I don't work. So I'm getting career guidance from people who don't work and marriage guidance. You go in and complain about the wife, what's she done? Oh my God, maybe made me move out the bins or something like that. They'd say, I don't know how you stick it. If I go home, know what I'd do with you? I'd go home and just tell her, sling your hook. You deserve better than that. Uh, they'd say, well, are you married? No, no, my, my my wife has left me, you know, so I'm getting career guidance from people who don't work and marriage guidance from people whose work, whose wives have left them. And I gave that. I must say now, to be honest with you, it wasn't as if I would just was an alien milieu. That's the type of milieu, that's the type of atmosphere that I lived in. So it's that water mitty world, you know, that water mitty world that I lived in. Yeah, uh, when, when, when the bar was closed uh, across the street from where I lived, there was a, a bus shelter. And I sit there with the other guys in the bus shelter drinking, you know, and uh, I only lived about 100 yards away. And I had a house, my wife, a warm bed, everything, but I wouldn't go home. I, 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 I don't, couldn't understand it, why I wouldn't go home. I said, why don't you come home? If I did go home, I'd, I'd drink in the garage. I wouldn't go in. I had this thing that was a sort of a magic spell. If you went home, the spell was broken which is an in interesting concept in itself. But that's the type of thing, the way I drank is, is that was my drinking. And uh, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, you know, well, in a way, I suppose my problem is I drink too much. And they, you said, uh, no, people who drink too much are heavy drinkers. You might be different. You might be alcoholic. And they, you defined an alcoholic as when you take that first drink into your system, something happens physically, chemically. It sets up what they, you call that phenomenon of craving. And it was always a phenomenon to me that I could go into a bar if you'd warned me up to a lie detector test before I went in. I'm going to have two bars and I'm two beers and going to go home. Uh, needle wouldn't flicker. Is that you're going in for two beers? Yeah. Are uh, you going to go home? Yeah. And I go in for two beers, and uh, unknownst to me, uh, the phenomenon of craving kicked in. I thought the problem was Eamon came in, my friend from Worthington. I buy him a drink, he buys me one back. Now I have three drinks. Now Russell comes in from Toronto, he drinks whiskey. Now I'm drinking whiskey, you know. And then unknowns to me, the phenomenon of craving kicks in. I have a blackout. I was always a blackout drink. I'd wake up at home the next morning. Or maybe I'd wake up in another city. I could wake up if I was drinking in Dublin. I might wake up in London if I was in Belfast. I might wake up in uh, 
uh, uh, Scotland. When I lived in America, I might be drinking in Washington. I wind up in New York. Now, they were events, I used to say. Normally, 99% of the time, I woke up out of a blackout at home, my own bed, my own wife. That's what happened to me. Now, if you'd have said to me, you told me yesterday you were only going to for two beers, and uh, what happened? Well, I always had an excuse. I always had an excuse. I'll tell you exactly what happened is Russell came in and I started drinking whiskey. I had an excuse. If he hadn't come in, I wouldn't have drunk whiskey. And if I hadn't drunk whiskey, I wouldn't have had a placard. Now, if that's your problem, if that's your problem is, the answer to that is what? Well, the answer is don't drink with Russell. Next one, so next Saturday when Russell comes in, I'm not drinking with him. And I, that's, the, that's, the, that's how trite my, my view on alcoholism was. I didn't even know about alcoholism. Christmas. I was dried out twice in 1963 and 64. Uh, there was no rehabs then, it was a hospital. Uh, they might have mentioned staying off wondering for one day. I didn't hear them. They might have mentioned about AA. I'd never heard of it. They might have mentioned about the first drink gets you drunk. I didn't hear any of that. All I heard was you drink too much. And I left there trying to find a way of drinking, of not drinking too much. And that's my drinking story. How do you find a way of not drinking too much? Well, I don't know. Well, there is no way of doing it if you're an alcoholic. Because when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, you suffer from this illness, a disease. When you take that first drink into your system, something happens physically, chemically. It sets up what they, what you call the phenomenon of craving. And they said, you know, uh, you, you can't beat an allergy. You can't beat a craving, the phenomenon of craving. The only way is to stay off one drink for one day. But they talked about the physical side of the illness, about staying off one drink for one day. I was thinking recently about this is that there's a sort of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I, I can't remember. I had a bit of a stroke last year. My memory is just a little bit fizzy. But there's a, there's a range within AA, you know, of people who only have a physical allergy. I have met people in AA who only have a physical allergy. I've sponsored four people who told me they had a physical allergy only. Uh, and when they stopped drinking, they were okay. I believe three of them, one of them was lying. Uh, I believe three of them, once they stopped drinking, they were okay. And then at the other side of that range, or whatever, there's another word for it, you know, the range is people who have a grave mental and emotional disorders, most of us. We're in the middle. We have a physical allergy to alcohol, and we have this, we have some mental and emotional issues that need to be addressed. They need to be addressed. And the reason they need to be addressed is, yeah, if you read the, in the, 12, in the uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says... Uh, it says not drinking is good. You'd expect that from the big book of AA, wouldn't you? Not drinking is good. It says, uh, it says exactly, it says, uh, it says the experiment of quitting for a period of time is helpful. You'd expect that from the big book of AA. But we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholics and describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking for obviously that's the crux of the problem, you know. Uh, yeah, the, uh, words were my business for a long, long time, but I like looking up words in dictionaries and the crux of the problem. AA is saying the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem, I looked it up in a dictionary, it means the central, the central part of a problem. So AA is saying the central part of the problem of alcoholism is, is, uh, is uh, why do you keep going back drinking? That's, 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 that's the crux of the problem. Why do you keep going back drinking? Well, if you're like me, you're going to say, I don't know. 
Well, yeah, saying you better find out the cause, the condition. Because there's one thing I think we can nearly all agree on is at one stage, every one of us have said these words at one stage. I'm never drinking again as long as I live. At some stage in our drinking, we want to say, and meant it. I'm not saying we said I'm never drinking again and was lying. I mean, I will never drink again as long as I live. I would say to my wife, this is a great lesson because I'm never drinking again as long as I live. And then she'd say, well, why don't you take a pledge? I say, I don't need a pledge because I'm never drinking again. Never. I'll never drink again as long as I live. I could be drunk in the afternoon. I will be drunk by Thursday. Like, that's the crux of the problem AA is saying. Why do you keep going back? And it says in the big book, if we're true to ourselves, as we're going to say, we don't know. We can tell ta- excuses. My wife left me. My, my wife came back. I lost my job. It rained. You know, they're all excuses. Why did she keep? I don't know. I have to say, well, all I can really come up with, I liked it. I like it. I like, well, like, I like the effect that alcohol gives me. I like the effect that alcohol gives me. The first time I took a drink, it worked. You never hear a social drinker say that. They say, what do you mean it worked? Well, if you're an alcoholic of my type, it, it gave me an amazing sense of ease and comfort that, you know, that I hadn't had for a long, long time, as long as I can re- re- remember. Our co-founder, Bill Wilson, he said the first time he took a drink, it was like magic. He said he'd found the elixir of life. For the first time in his life, he said, it is that invisible barrier that separated from him from other people, including his closest family, vanished. He said, I felt at ease. I found the elixir of life. I looked up that word elixir. What does it mean? It says, um, uh, well, one definition of it, a mythical potion that turned everything to gold. Isn't that brilliant? A mythical potion that turned everything to gold. Isn't that great? That's what alcohol did for me. It turned everything from shit to gold. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. Eamon maybe might remember. Do you remember that movie, The Days of Wine and Roses, uh, Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick, I think. And uh, they're an alcoholic couple. He gets sober. She never gets sober. It's a very sad movie. But um, the one scene in it where he's trying to convince her to stop drinking, and it's a nighttime scene. They're looking out on a street, dark uh, street. And she says, when I look out that window sober, all I see is dark, dank, dreary world. And she says, when I look out of that window with alcohol inside me, it's like looking out on a whole new technicolor vista. Isn't that brilliant? And that's the, that's the effect that alcohol had on me the first time I took it. I took a drink. It worked. It gave me that amazing sense of ease and comfort. One of our members in our group, he talked about first time, he's quite dramatic. He said, uh, first time I took a drink, he said, my life went from black and white into technicolor. Now, it wasn't as dramatic as that for me, but it was pretty dramatic. It was pretty dramatic the first time I took a drink. First time I took a drink, we were living in inner city in Dublin. Terrible poverty, extreme poverty, but you don't know you're poor when you're young. I thought it was brilliant. But at the end of the street where I lived, there was a bar. Now, my dad drank in the bar, and my uncles drank in the bar, and my grandfather drank in the bar. And when I was 16, which was the legal age, uh, I joined them. They made a space for me, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the noise. I loved the smell. You know, that smell of rancid beer and cigarette smoke. Even, you know, when I used to... 
go by that pub in the morning on my way to school. I love that smell. I just loved it. It was it was just invigorating. It's just invigorating. Yes, it is. I loved it. And that first time I took a drink, as I say, it worked. It gave me that amazing sense of ease and comfort. First time I took a drink, I had a blackout. I was always a blackout drinker. Always a blackout drinker. First time I took a drink, I had a blackout. I was living at home with my mom, my dad, in the street. And uh, you come out of a blackout. Now, if you're a blackout drinker, you know this. You know when you wake up out of a blackout and you can feel trouble. You can feel trouble. There's trouble in this house and it's to do with me. I could hear my mother downstairs banging pots and pans and doors and oh my God. Oh, oh. there was all this rance. There was a terrible smell of rancid lime and stuff like that. It was all sick all over the bedroom. And, oh, oh, it was terrible. Bits of paper with vomit. Oh, it was terrible. Oh my God. And my mother came up and read me the right act, you drunken bum. The smell of this place, you know. I used to say it was the lime did it, you know, curdled lime. The lime curdles your stomach, you know. <laughs> Vodka is good for you, but lime curdles your stomach. You know that rubbish that the alcoholic comes out with. The other thing I used to say every now and again was the air hit me. You know, you're breathing air every second of your life and it never bothers you. And then one night you have... 20 pints of Guinness and half a bottle of gin, and the air decides to attack you. What an amazing coincidence that is, isn't it? Oh, my mother, she read me to get drunk and bombed. The four horsemen were at the bottom of the bed, terror, bewilderment, despair, the one I can never remember. But they all got offside when my mother came in. Oh, Bobby, you oh, was terrible. Oh, I said, Mommy, it's the first time I drank. And here's what I said to her. And I meant with every fiber of my being, I'll never drink again as long as I live. Now, I'm not lying when I say that. I'm telling you, if I'd had the knowledge or the power of the understanding not to drink again, I wouldn't have drink, drunk again, but drink again, I did. And that's the story of my drink. And I can tell you hundreds of stories about the drink, but that's, just, that's basically the story of my drink. I drank, I had a blackout, I got into trouble, and I said these words, I'm never drinking again as long as I live. And I always went back. I'm like Alcoholics Anonymous. I always went back. Why do you go back? I don't know. I don't know. <coughs> Excuse, <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, I was very lucky in Alcoholics Anonymous. At my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, they were someone read out. Uh, maybe, maybe they said it. A common trait of the alcoholic is restlessness, irritability, and discontent. Now, if you're, an alcohol, if you're in, a, in a meeting of AA, you're thinking, what's that going to do with drinking? What's that going to do with drinking? Well, and no one ever said to me, restless, irritable, and discontent. I never said it to a barman. I'm particularly restless, irritable, and discontent. But uh, my mother used to say, in Ireland, there's a saying, there's a want in you. My mother used to say, there's a want in you. W-A-N-T, you know, you're never happy. And that's the truth of it, really, is there was... I was always restless, irritable, and discontent. I could not have told you any of those words. In fact, anything I tell you in it now is as a result of the language that I've learned in AA. I couldn't have told you any of this languages. I couldn't have told you I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I couldn't have told you there was something wrong with me. I used to get thrown out of bars. Get out, you bum. I was so insulted. Oh, my God, I'm not a bum. How dare you? Well, what's wrong with you then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't. My wife used to say, what's wrong with you? I'd say, you're what's wrong with me. You're what's wrong with me. But I sort of knew there was something wrong with me. 
My mother said once, I heard her saying to a neighbor, our Johnny's a tortured soul, tortured soul. It was always that I couldn't put into words what was wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong with me. You know, I said it to you earlier, when Bill wrote, wrote Bill Wilson, our co-founder, he said the first time he took a drink at work, you gave him that amazing sense of ease and comfort. He talked about that invisible barrier of isolation and loneliness which separated him from his fellow man. Well, I was only in AA my second night, and this was read out. I was so fortunate. I actually am a very lucky person, but I was so fortunate. This is from the 12 by 12, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book of AA. And it's from step five. It says, what are we likely to receive from AA? I'm going to read it out to you. Well, for one thing, we get rid of that terrible sense of isolation we've always had, almost without exception. And not all alcoholics, I get it, but almost without exception. Alcoholics are tortured by loneliness. Even before our drinking got bad and people began to cut us off. Nearly all of us, not all of us, but nearly all of us suffer the feeling we didn't quite belong. There was always that mysterious barrier we could neither surmount or understand. You know, when that was read out in my second meeting, you're going to hit me with the baseball bat. Restless, irritable, and discontent, that feeling of isolation and loneliness. Bill Wilson, our co founder, says that an invisible barrier of isolation and loneliness came down upon him when he was 12, when his parents divorced. With me, there was nothing like that. I was sitting in a classroom in Dublin around the age of seven. In a sense, nothing happened. Nothing happened, but a sense came over me, a feeling there's something wrong with me. Not good enough. Like I couldn't put into words what it was. Bill talks about that in a letter. He says, The chilling vapor that's the mental and emotional side of the disease of alcoholism descends slowly, growing thicker, darker, denser, more sinister. You know, and that came down upon me around the age of seven. A sense of feeling is there's something wrong, and it got worse, it got more sinister. To the age of 12, I'm, I got my happy go lucky kid to the age of 12, and nothing's happened. But at the age of 12, I think I might have to kill myself. I've always this sense of restlessness, irritability, and discontent, but I couldn't have told you then. So I always had this sense there's something wrong with me, is you know, that that feeling that you hear talked about in AA, what people say is, you know, guilt is I made a mistake, and but shame is I am a mistake. I always felt that sense of well, I couldn't have put anything into words, just that there's something wrong with me, and I don't know what it is. And it's a terrible way to go if you identify with that, that sense of isolation and loneliness. And for me, there was one thing that was really, really important. And I, I, I can't tell you why it was important, but it had to be a secret. It was important that nobody knew there was anything wrong with me. So all the time outside, I'm pretending I'm well, Jack the lad, everything is good. And inside, I'm bleeding to death, you know. And a couple of years ago, I, 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 and a couple of years ago, I, I, I hosted a radio program. BBC on poetry, which is my genre. But anyway, I can do it. And there's a poem by a woman called Stevie Smith. She's from Hull. I don't know where anyone's from Hull, but uh, she died when she was 55 of alcoholism, I think. But she wrote this poem, and it's about a woman who's out at sea, and she's swimming, and she's waving to shore. And the people on shore can see her, but they can't hear her. When they see her waving, they're waving back and laughing. But if they could see her, if they could hear her, what she's saying is, I'm not waving, I'm drowning. I'm not waving, I'm drowning. That's a great story of my life, you know. Outside, everything is jack the lad, everything's well, everything's great, and inside, I'm drowning. 
and drowning. The woman at our meeting a couple of weeks ago said something that was similar to that. She talked about everything in place, everything in her life was perfect. Her kids, her husband, her job, her house, everything was perfect. And inside she was screaming in pain. And I thought of that Edvard Munch painting, you know, the painting of the scream of the bridge, you know, the scream. <coughs> and then she said something incredible. She said, you know, when she took that first drink, that scream turned into a sigh of relief. Isn't that brilliant? That's the reason I drank. That's what alcohol did for me. In fact, I say this sometimes is, you know, at the age of 12, I, I, I was thinking of killing myself. I was always joining things, looking for the answer. Scouts, cubs, would have joined the girl guides, drama societies, debating societies. I'm an expert in Byzantine art. I'm always joining uh, uh, correspondence courses, never finish them, join them, start, never. Some of it has stood to me, but at the time I was on this frantic search without knowing it, without knowing I'm on a search looking for the answer to what's wrong with me. And I don't know what's wrong with me. What a way to go through that. I, I'm always buying books as well. I bought this book when I was 12, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. And uh, there's an exercise in which you read this exercise. I did it in the toilet, locked in the toilet, 12 years of age. You read this exercise every day. In every way, I'm getting better and better. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better, you know? I told that on a meeting in America and a woman came up later. She said, it's the saddest thing. She started crying. She said, it's the saddest thing I've ever heard. I, I hadn't thought it was sad. And then I thought, you know, if I saw my 12-year-old son or daughter or granddaughter or grandson locked in a toilet reading every day and every way I'm getting better and better, I burst out crying. And it got worse. It got worse. And then at 16, I found the answer to what was wrong with me. I don't know what happened there. I'll make sure I'm not going on too long. <clears throat> uh, when I was 16, I found the answer to what was wrong with me. Alcohol was the answer to what was wrong with me. I'm telling you now is my problem was not alcohol. My solution was alcohol. My problem was alcoholism. When I took that first drink into my system that gave me that amazing sense of ease and comfort, well, you all know what happened. The phenomenon of craving kicked in and it became a problem. The answer becomes a problem and that vicious cycle you get into an alcoholic synonymous or an, as an alcoholic. And that drink, you have to drink and then it becomes a problem and you say, I'm never drinking again as long as I live. But you have to go back to drinking. You have to go back. But you, you don't, you're powerless over, over taking that first drink. Life gets so painful that you have to take drink. That's what happened to me. And then I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I found the answer to what was wrong with me. My problem was an alcohol, it was alcoholism. I looked after the physical side of the illness by staying off one drink for one day. But that other side of the illness, that restlessness, the irritability and discontent, I was so lucky. I met a man on day three, I was working in Belfast at the time, and he'd seen, I was walking around Belfast city centre at lunchtime. Uh, he, he'd seen me at a meeting, I hadn't seen him before, day three. Uh, and uh, and uh, we went and had a coffee, a most profound meeting, he was a uh, labourer in the shipyard, wisest man I've ever met. So we sat down in this coffee, out dingy old cafe in Belfast. He held his hand up and he says, I know you. I thought I've never seen you before in my life. He said, there's nothing outside of you that's going to make you happy. And now it's an inside job. 
He said, you must be tired searching. I was tired searching. I was tired, sick, sore and tired of looking for the answer to what's wrong with me and not knowing what's wrong with me. It's a terrible way to go through life. He said, you're like the prodigal son. It's time to come home. Now, all I can tell you about that is, is this, is when he said, you're like the prodigal son, it's time to come home, I started crying. That's all I can tell you. I don't know where it came from. I'm just telling you that's what happened to me. And he said, for you, he says, the way home, he said, it's the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He spoke about our co-founder, uh, Bill Wilson, uh, writing to Carl Jung and thanking him for what he'd done for AA. I think Jung wrote back and said, I don't remember doing anything for AA. But he said, Carl Jung, he said he always felt that alcoholics on a low-level search for a spiritual way of life. Doesn't that sound very grand? That's the search I've been on from the age of seven, a low-level search for a spiritual way of life. Uh, now, if you'd have seen me asleep on a bar, say, having peed myself, see that guy over there who's just fallen asleep and has pissed himself? He's on a low-level search for a spiritual way of life. Or your woman over there dancing on the table, she's on a low-level search for God. I believe it to be true. I do believe that's the, that's the search that, that, that we, we've been on. And he said, for you, the journey home, he talked about the spiritual journey home. He talked about the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And here's something he said that I think is profound and true. He said, AA will do for you slowly what alcohol did for you instantly. That's a pretty big statement. AA will do for you slowly what alcohol did for you instantly. And that's what AA has done for me. Now, at one stage, I said to him, I think my problem, Danny, is I'm shy. He laughed in my face. He said, you're the exact opposite of shyness, but you do suffer from excruciatingly painful self-awareness. Oh, my God, that's exactly what I've suffered from. Excruciatingly painful now. Every moment of my life, excruciatingly painful self-awareness. And he said, he said, it's a spiritual malady. He said, and it's a spiritual answer, 12-step program of alcoholics and all this, which I put into my life. That feeling of restlessness, irritability, and discontent, excruciatingly painful, it's gone. I don't have it. I had it every moment. It's gone. I can't, I can't tell you. It's gone. I don't have it. All as a result of putting these uh, programs into my life. I more or less told you the first two steps, and uh, our birthday girl read out the, uh, how it works, you know? And at that end of her, <clears throat> she read about how it works. It says, being convinced we're now at step three. If you're convinced of any of the things that I've spoken about is and that you're, you're, uh, you suffer from what I suffer about, it's, it's, there's a good chance you're at step three. You know, when AA started, you could, do the, you could do the equivalent of the program in a weekend. But anyway, a step three, and you know how long it takes you to do step three? 12 seconds. It takes you 12 seconds to do step three. That's how long it takes. I'll read it. I'll time it so you know. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them. I may bear witness to those I would help of that power their love and their way of life. May I do your will always. 13 seconds. So if you want to, you can do the third step in 13 seconds. In the fourth and fifth step, I don't care who you are, everybody has secrets, you know, things that we've done and things that are being done to us, things we have done and things we've been done, uh, things that have been done to us, is, I don't care who you are, everybody has is. And, you know, the reason why we do it is, uh, it's in the 12 by 12, it says, why do we go through, back out through our lives, look, Reagan, all this stuff? And it says the reason we do it is we go back into our lives where we see our personalities have been given violent twists. Things we've done, 
but things that are being done to us as well as things we've done and things, and it talks about it and they, they, you share that with another human being and then the sixth and seventh step it says no real alcoholic ever recovers without experiencing a profound personality change and in the sixth and seventh talk, step talks about exactly how the personality change can come about or living a spiritual way of life is. And here's the thing as well as if you have a difficulty with this word spiritual way of life or God or anything like this. Is. God came to our meeting and he talked about this being a, he talked about being a man of character, a man of integrity. And he talked about being built for kindness and courtesy. The, the day he said that, I went to, I was home, I was reading a newspaper and the Dalai Lama said, this religion can be defined in one word, kindness. Kindness. Now, uh, I thought I was built for kindness and courtesy. And then I thought, you know, my mother taught me about kindness and courtesy. Spiritual way of life, school taught me, uh, church taught me, Boy Scouts of Ireland taught me, honorable, brave, noble, kind, considerate. But I thought it was all for losers. I didn't think it was for me. I thought happiness came from money, purpose, sex. I was wrong. Now, yeah, short term. But where does real happiness come from? You know, it talks about living a spiritual way of life. It sounds pretty grand. There's a Seneca who was a Roman philosopher. He was a pagan. He said, everybody knows happiness comes from helping others. Uh, maybe you guys knew that, but I didn't know that. Happiness comes from helping others. My God. And then that making amends. I don't care who you are, as you know, if you've got to start a new way of life, started by making amends, cleaning up the wreckage of the past, and then living, if you can, live on the three, on the, on, on the, on the last and the last three steps, living a spiritual way of life that sounds very grand. Would you give a thirsty man a glass of water? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, I would. I like that idea of being a man of character and a man of integrity. And the only way I can seem to behave like this is by coming to meetings of AA. At my first meeting, I thought this. I wonder how long this will last. This is another fad, you know. It's lasted 45 years. I've been going to three and four meetings for 45. I love AA. I love the life it's given me. I just love the life it's given me. And I'll tell you about the life it's given me too. We rarely talk about this in AA, but you know, I, um, uh, I was a documentary filmmaker. I was a war photographer when I came in, documentary filmmaker. I was injured in a, a bomb explosion in, 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 in 2001. My career sort of ended then as, as a documentary filmmaker. And that's happened to me many times. I was sitting in this guy's car, a politician. He said, you fancy joining our political party? I thought, yeah, okay. And, you know, as always happened with me, within a year, I'm, I'm vice chair of the party. Another year, I'm running for Senate, didn't get in. And uh, it runs course. And I started off as a, uh, in a woman's car. She always saying, but boy, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And she said, why don't you join this charity that I'm a, I'm a member of, Disability Charity. I joined it, but as happens, in a year, I'm on the board. I set my own charity up for disabled women and children in developing countries. And I loved it. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. And so when, when COVID came in that I took a step back. And recently I've been invited. You know, I'm, I've been invited to be a global ambassador for the UN on, on the UN Convention of Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Like, I'm a bum. you got to remember this. Is I, Like, I'm a drunk. I sat in bars dreaming of things like this, all the great things I was going to do. But I could never get off the bar stool. I could never get it off the bar stool. I couldn't get off the bar stool. I would have told you next year all the great things I'm going to do is, but I couldn't get off the bar stool. 
So as a result of putting this program into my life and just turning up for life, and just turning up for life, I'm living a life beyond my wildest dreams. Now, if you're thinking about living a spiritual way of life, I probably am an agnostic. I said to my sponsor, Danny, I think I'm an atheist. He says, you're not bright enough to be an atheist. He says, you're probably agnostic. Well, I said, I'm going to do the third step. He says, just do it. He says, you don't have to mean and believe it, just do it. And that's the way I did it. I took 12 seconds out of my life to kneel down and say, believe me of the bondage of self, I better do your will. Take away more difficulties, victory over them, may bear witness of that help of that power they love. And though I have life, 12 seconds, and great things came to pass in my life. It's just great things came to pass in my life. That's all I could tell you. And I love reading spiritual literature. I was reading something the other day. It's important to me to say this. I was reading something the other day, and it's a Gnostic gospel. And uh, what did uh, Mark Thomas says to Christ? Now I'm an agnostic. He said, how do you be happy? Christ said, I'm fed up telling you. Just be a passerby in life. Just pass by. See, I'm an alcoholic who's addicted to drama. Drama, drama, drama. Family drama. News drama. Weather drama. Traffic drama. Drama, drama, drama. Here, here, here's John. Here's drama. I'm trying to be able to say no. No. No, I'm going to pass by. It's hard to do, try and do it. So that's the life I try and live, live at the moment. Is that you probably, I probably sound like Blessed John of Belfast. But anyway, I do try and live this way of life. And what stops me from living it is, what stops me from living it all the time is my ego. When you hear an ego in AA, you think pride. But the ego is different. It means you're driving along the road and someone cuts in on you. You know, they're doing it to me. They're doing it to me. Or I'm in a line in the supermarket. First of all, there should be a line for people like me, you know, in a real hurry. And you try and pick the line, which is the quickest. That's the quickest line there. And you get in the line and a guy can't find his wallet. Oh, my God, this always happens to me. Here he's looking for money back on some. Jesus, this always happens to me. And, you know, you have to get a sponsor and say, John, look, look. You can't deny it's happening, but it's not happening to you. It's happening, but it's not happening to you. Just pass by. I get great strength in that, I must say. Is, is. Now, the only way I can get the strength to behave like that is by keep coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is, is. I keep coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous three and four times a week. I love it. I just love it. To get the strength to behave like a person of character and a person of integrity. Now, I think my time's up. I, 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 my, my stopwatch stopped. But I, I think that's my 50 minutes up there. So I'm going to stop speaking now. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Whoever did listen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.